0: Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability podcast. In each episode, we will talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you are ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution toward solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlscott. I'm a principal at FOVIA, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm.
1: There's no question that now people are becoming more and more disconnected from the food system, and there are so many ways that we can be using our landscapes more creatively.
2: The garden makes the housekeepers feel like the university cares about them as people.
0: Quite honestly, a number of students come into college and don't even know what a pepper may look like. And so it's kind of neat to be able to see that. Well, so today's episode is the last in a series of episodes that came out of our summer internship program. Um, you've heard a couple of other episodes in the last two, I believe. Um, but today we have Kaya Finlay. Um, so, Kaya, why don't you give us a little introduction for yourself and let's talk about your episode?
3: Yeah, I'm really excited to have done this episode. So I'm a recent graduate of UNC Chapel Hill, and during my time as a student there, I got really involved in food systems and sustainability. So in doing this episode, I wanted to tackle the complexity of sustainable food systems and explore how universities, in this case using UNC Chapel Hill as a case study, Uh, how they strive for sustainability in all aspects of that complex system, whether that's purchasing or growing organic food, cutting down on energy usage associated with food, increasing access to healthy food, or building community, all in the food system. I conducted three interviews with representatives from three different organizations on campus, so I hope each interview will sort of showcase the successes and challenges in each organization, but then taken together they will reveal a little bit more about these food systems.
0: Well, I like how you got some folks that were involved in this food system just from a personal level and then all the way up to the people that are in charge of running the entire uh, food operations for the entire campus. Uh, So that was, it was kind of fun to hear their different perspectives as well as how similar a lot of the problems are. Definitely. Well, I'm also excited to announce that Kaya has moved from summer intern to our podcast and communications manager here at Fovia. So welcome to the team, Kaya, and we'll look forward to hearing your episode.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. Hope people will also enjoy it. Here is my first interview. Hi, my name is Laura Minlin and I'm the coordinator of Edible Campus UNC. We are an education program of the North Carolina Botanical Garden that converts gardens across the UNC Chapel Hill campus to growing edible, medicinal, and pollinator-friendly plants for UNC student and community engagement. I've been on the program just, I think, edging up on three years now. We, while I am a staff member on the program now, we do try to keep students at the forefront of everything. So we hire student garden managers and students running our communication and our engagement and outreach and educational programming as best we can.
3: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And can you describe the the main garden versus the satellite gardens and sort of how everything Mm -hmm. is laid out?
1: Yeah. So our main garden is this quarter acre production education garden that's directly behind davis library so it's right in the middle of campus and right now it's about half raised beds and mounded beds and has a ring of berry bushes and some a pollinator patch and then the other half of it was actually blocked off for construction for the two years of this garden's existence, and the construction fence just came out a few weeks ago. So that's now being converted into a lawn, and we're going to have a little stage and a little education space. And we kind of think of it as, yeah, it's an education garden. Uh, It's a hub of activity for different food and food justice organizations, and also just for the community in general for non-food or garden-related activities. This quote-unquote satellite gardens that are spurring off of this main garden are in all directions from that garden. So there's right now they're clustered into eight sites and we've got 10 or 11 garden beds that are like the garden the main garden was constructed it was a it was before an unused land and it was turned into a garden whereas the satellite gardens are gardens that were prior aesthetic gardens and now are incorporating edible medicinal and pollinator friendly plants. And all the satellite gardens are free-for-all picking. Anyone who's walking by is welcome to pick the garden so long as they're doing so responsibly, you know, leaving at least two-thirds of the plant. And the main garden, we since that is more of an education space, we don't have people just coming in and free-for-all picking in there. The majority of the food is harvested and donated to Carolina Cupboard, which is a student-run food pantry on campus. And if there are special events, we can know that that food will be available for the special event or if their students maybe wanted to engage in some research on a certain crop then like that's a protected space that they can do so in there. So all of the food grown in that main garden is 100% recirculated back into the UNC community. It's just done so in a little bit more intentional of a way than free-for-all picking. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool.
3: What need did Edible Campus fill in the UNC food systems?
1: On one hand, is I think the part that gets overlooked a little bit is this idea of working landscapes or how we're using the landscapes around us. And college campuses, you know, particularly Carolina, is like known for their aesthetic beauty but also for using its campus landscapes as, I think the term they use, like educational landscapes or interactive landscapes that kind of do more than just provide aesthetic beauty, but also serve some other role, whether it's fostering critical thinking or providing free food and supporting pollinators. And Edible Campus, in part, was created our network of 11 satellite, uh, satellite gardens or small gardens that are spread across campus, that were prior just aesthetic gardens and now are incorporating edible, medicinal and pollinator friendly plants. And a large part of kind of the thinking behind those gardens was that these are landscapes that students are walking by every day. And what if they could also provide free food or even build community and be a gathering space for people or foster this critical thinking of Oh, I never even thought twice about how I'm using the lands- my own home landscape or any landscapes around me, but there are so many ways that we can be using our landscapes more creatively. I think the other part, which is maybe the more obvious and the more trendy part of all of this, is this whole idea of edible landscaping and reconnecting people with the food growing process and with fresh produce. I think... There's no question that now people are becoming more and more disconnected from the food system and from just nature and place in general. And gardens are a really unique way to address that and to reconnect people to the spaces around them. Yeah, I think especially college-age students is like a really interesting age to be doing all this with because that's, for many people, the first time that they're having to fend for themselves food-wise so so I guess that's the second piece another piece is like the mental health benefits of spending time in gardens during well life in general but especially during college years which is a big time of transition and a really stressful time for a lot of people behind Davis library that space especially we we really hope can be a respite for people or a place that people can kind of step away from the stresses and pressures of university life and carry out garden work. Not only are people learning about sustainable agriculture and land management, but it's really providing a like, mental health value that uh, people found to be really important and necessary during these years.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And thinking about, like you've touched on this, but like thinking about all these different needs that the Edible Campus is feeling, mm-hmm. like why is it important for universities to have something like this, especially when they're thinking about sustainable food systems?
1: Well, I'll talk specifically about Carolina for a sec. Is uh, there's a very much an entrepreneurial emphasis here, and there are a lot of needs in our food system right now, and things that are really broken, and there's a lot of focus and attention here at UNC um, Chapel Hill on the more food justice, food sovereignty, public health, nutrition side of things. Um, and that's really important. Like that's that's great that that's happening. Um, I think that it is important for people going off and engaging in the more social side of food system work to at least understand the food growing process and have some experience with it. So I think this, at minimum, people engaging in food systems work, like have to see the process and work with a garden for at least a season and kind of like see that and learn to consider all the different factors that go into growing your own food. So I think that's a part of it. I think also there are just a ton of initiatives that are, again, addressing these, the more social side of food system work. And if we're able to use our garden to just take that learning or those efforts to the next level or add like another layer of depth to them. Like that's kind of how we are hoping to, for Edible Campus Gardens to be used. So instead of us growing food and starting our own food distribution or food pantry, like there already is a student run food pantry on campus and they now have the capacity for refrigeration and to hold fresh produce, but they've never distributed fresh produce before. So why don't we just grow our food and filter it to them and then now they can, we can do cooking classes together and we could, kind of partner and just help that initiative make even more of an impact. Same goes for, there's an organization, Urban, UNC, that engaged youth of color in sustainable agriculture, and they've had a few kind of scavenger hunt cooking workshops that they've done with students, and now we've been able to work with them and have the scavenger hunts in our gardens, and they collect the veggies and herbs from our gardens and make a big salsa together. So there's, like, things that were a little bit more... Like concepts now can be more closely paired to reality with using edible campus gardens.
3: That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's interesting to think about how it, everything's like a piece of everything else, like exactly in the mm-hmm. system. Thinking about just like from a sustainability standpoint, what makes the edible campus a sustainable garden and what sorts of sustainable practices do you um, implement?
1: Yeah. So, we, I mean, we haven't gone through like USDA organic certification or anything. Um, But we do follow all organic practices, so we're not spraying anything in any of our beds. We use a lot of mulch. We use a lot of, like, creative landscaping, so planting whatever it's cover crops or using a lot of mulch or whatever it might be to kind of suppress some of the issues that can come up in gardens. We've been pretty lucky so far. I wouldn't say very lucky, but pretty lucky in terms of haven't gotten, like, hit by a lot of, like, really bad pest and disease in most of our beds. We do crop rotation, too. Um, so, we're not playing the same things in our beds every year. We also, since we are looking to engage as much of the UNC community as possible, a lot of things that could be really tedious for a large farm, like hand weeding, like we weed can do. <laughs> so, we don't need to spread different chemicals that are going to suppress weeds when, like, we can have work days of weed. I don't know how fun they are for everyone, but we can, in theory, have work days for weed pulling. I think the other layer of sustainability of, like, how just our program functions. I think we were talking a little bit before that we have tried to create a model that we're not in competition with other food organizations on campus, but are rather providing uh, resources to them just to help others maximize their own missions. With that, like, Just so that we're not taking on the world, like even little things like doing cooking demos, like we're hoping to start this up in the fall and we'll partner with classes who are, that's incorporated into the curriculum or other student orgs who already do it. We'll just partner with them and let them use our space to do the cooking demo as opposed to then us needing to create a wheel that's already totally rolling on campus. I have a little bit of a permaculture background and that's kind of like that approach. I was working on farms in Costa Rica for a bit and one of the permaculture principles is increase or maximize hammock time and I really like that because it's like yeah we should be able to like relax and be in the garden and be as efficient with our resources and our partnerships and everything as possible. We have been working for a little bit now on creating an interactive plant map showing what's growing in all the gardens, how to pick them, how to cook with them, what they're good for and instead of going out to like a private company to do that we partnered with a computer science class and we had computer science students at UNC create that for us. And we've kind of used that model of like, we need this. Okay, well, we need new marketing materials. Let's reach out to the public relations class and create new materials. So a lot of just like different ways to create a sustainable program for us, but then also create more educational opportunities for the the UNC community. So it's kind of a win-win, I think. We're still working on the economic sustainability piece of it. We're getting closer, um, but we've still got a little bit of funding. We're um, looking for just so that we could continue to respond to the demand from every area of campus to have new gardens or new educational programming we want to be able to say yes to everything so we're working on that
3: yeah and I'd love to ask you a few more questions about that but before getting into that Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the partnerships that you have with the other food focused organizations like you talked a little bit about the pantry but like what's your relationship to the Carolina campus community garden and to Carolina Dining Services
1: to start with Caroline Campus Community Garden, they're also an education program of the North Carolina Botanical Garden. They've been around for a lot longer than us, so we are learning a lot from them in terms of the garden management piece of it. Caroline Dining Services, so we, in a lot of universities, it's the campus gardens that then feed into the dining hall. But here, I think when we started, I remember I was sitting in, in a class of Apple Service Learning students who work closely with us every fall. And... I was totally new to Caroline, it's like my first like week of the job and I was new to this campus and I was like, so, you know, what are the food organizations here? And I, coming from a small liberal arts school, there were like, there was one food org and one environmental student org and like those were the ones and I was kind of expecting that and then they started listing for like 20 minutes, like all of the different food and food justice and social justice and nutrition bodies here on campus. So with that, they're kind of like, so just don't start another one. <laughs> I'm like, how can you plug in? Um, and then with that also, I think when we were figuring out what's gonna happen to the food that we grow and where what our like major partners gonna be, since there was such a vibrant like food justice vibe among and energy among student orgs here on campus, I think we thought that we would have a bigger impact filtering our food through these organizations as opposed to donating stuff or selling stuff to the dining hall where they serve, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of meals a day. And we would only be able to make a pretty tiny portion of that. So the end with our model being more educational, I think it was more important to us to use our food for the educational purposes, as opposed to providing food to supplement the dining hall. I think though recently the dining hall is amazing. They're doing unbelievable stuff here on campus to, support local sustainable food and source local sustainable they're like beyond so many other universities across the country so there's no question that like they believe in all this and they actually provide um, some generous amount of uh, funding for our program and we have been working especially these past few months on growing our partnership even just an educational space so we're going to start leading um, monthly foraging walks together so for folks to Feel more comfortable engaging in our garden spaces and walk around the gardens and um, learn to pick some of the food that's growing there. There's a bunch of other potential opportunities for us to partner with them a little bit more creatively. Um, but I think as more people are learning about Edible Campus, then more people are coming to us to be like, hey, we're doing this. Like, Do you want to partner? Like, So we're learning a lot just by people knowing about us. And then, of course, over time too, like, and empowering students to be the leaders of organization, they know about a lot more than I do, of course. So They kind of bring different ideas where their friends are in this club and want to partner. And it's like, great, that's perfect. That's exactly why we, we have so many students involved in that way. And I'm still, you know, only been here for a few years, like getting to know the university system and the relationship between the universities in the area. But I think that it's also something to consider too, like what the specialties of the different colleges and universities in this area are. So I think that's a, a large part of the reason why there isn't that much agriculture education here at Carolina is because you have NC State right next to us and they have a ton of resources there and people can take classes there. And that's what they do so well. Like we, the focus here, if the focus is more food justice, such as justice, public health, entrepreneurial, then like, this school emphasizes kind of like that more. And then I think Duke has even another focus. The um, Central Carolina Community College has a great sustainable agriculture program there too. But with that, I think that's why I think Edible Campus is important is because we're not an agriculture school. But I think, you know, there's now a food studies minor and there's more food studies, people doing self-declared majors. And it's becoming really popular on campus that while we won't become like an NC State, if we are putting resources into a food studies minor or, or supporting that direction for the university, like you've got to provide some agriculture education. Edible Campus and Caroline Campus Community Garden and Hope Gardens, all these gardens provide a really important role for the university just in that comprehensive food system education here.
3: Mm-hmm, definitely. And going back to what you are saying before about like, economic sustainability and the, mm-hmm. the sustainability of keeping everything going into the next year, like, yeah. so that you don't have to keep worrying that you're going to have to dig up some money sometime right. or like, go find people out in the pit and mm-hmm. get them to come in and work.
1: There's so many layers of this. We have definitely been putting a big emphasis on how we can institutionalize any area of our program. So an example of that would be the satellite gardens. We those gardens are spread all across campus, so very hard for our like 1.5 staff people on this program to manage on our own, obviously, mm-hmm. um, or even for our student garden managers to manage on their own. So it seemed like a really natural fit early on for us to be partnering with Res Life because a lot of the gardens are close to dorms, and that's such a cool way to you know bond with your community and feel a sense of place in the craziness that, isn't, that is college. So we are now actually in the RHA, Residential Hall Association, constitution that, well, they actually provide some funding for materials for those gardens, and they will appoint usually the sustainability coordinators of each dorm that help to water and maintain and plan for the gardens that are close to their dorms. So that's like one way that we've, instead of having to every year recruit waterers to adopt the gardens and hope we find enough, there's a little bit of certainty in that partnership. And it's still new; it's still being piloted. Once we get kind of comfortable in that, then we can have them for per- creating even more, you know, educational programming and and community activities and different stuff using the gardens. We have an Apple Service Learning course that has students dedicated um, specifically to our garden and Carolina Campus Community Garden every fall and every spring now. So that's a good sustainable source of people. We also hire a team of five or so interns every semester and then two garden managers over the summer. Those and we haven't at this point ever had trouble filling any of those positions because this is a really growing area of interest right now. If you talk to any campus gardening program, the biggest issue is turnover, not like bad turnover, but turnover just people go abroad, people graduate just working with students and the fact that a lot of the exciting gardening stuff is over the summer and not when the school's in session. So those are things we work with. I think we would love to shift and we're getting closer to it and we'd love to shift to having our whole team, whatever area they're working on, be returning year to year or at least be committed for the entire academic year. Again, that's a win-win for students and our our staff because a lot of students, like it takes a few months to like really feel comfortable and feel empowered and autonomous and ready to lead and grow the program and then they'll leave. So we've had a lot of students who are eager for, for longer term appointments anyways. Um, we also are just for the first year have created a student organization counterpart to our program. And that was totally born out of One of our students who just was really excited, he was working with us, Apple Service Learning, and was really excited about the program and thought that we were meeting and not meeting our potential and how broad of the student body we could reach and thought a student organization would really help us to do that. So the student org will now have a lot of more of the outreach educational components of our program and people can filter in and become lead projects or initiatives or anything. Um, It's something we've been thinking about a lot recently is since we're still new and people are still learning what Edible Campus is and not sure that they could, how they can get involved with the program or if they're allowed to pick the produce and just like a little bit excited about it, but hesitant to really jump in. It's shifting really quickly and people are learning and getting more comfortable really quickly. We are a little bit worried about what's going to happen when more people find out and more people want to attend our work days or more people are picking from the gardens. That's kind of why we're now where we're also trying to really build up the outdoor classroom vision of the garden and thinking of other creative ways that we can engage people in the garden spaces beyond just attending work days and picking the produce. Um, and that's everything, you know, from working with these marketing communication classes or having people create videos on how to grow in your own backyard or in your windowsill or leading other educational offerings. But we'll see. We'll cross it for when we get there. We're not quite there yet, but I think we're getting closer.
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you mentioned, a, you talked a little bit about this, but I'm just wondering, like, what are your hopes for the future? Like your, mm-hmm. your five-year plan, next steps.
1: I think the you know three-year plan is we really want to have this model of, like, we're now going to have a student organization with different working groups, and we're going to have work days, and we're going to have student leaders, and kind of having that model all figured out, and have all the kinks worked out for that, and have it be as, maybe it just might just be me, I'm a pretty structure-oriented person, but having that structure that every year we're just filling in and being as ingrained in the university as possible. So I think the three-year plan is like using all our resources as efficiently as possible in our partnerships and really increasing the use of our gardens in every way from social to academic. For example, we've had the Office of Accessibility and Resources reach out to us and they work with a lot of students who require extra time on tests or have midterm and final time, could be a really stressful time and thinking about... Whether we create a sensory garden part of our garden or have some activities that we know will happen every midterm and final period using our garden spaces. So we're really excited about opportunities like that. So I think we're just excited these next bunch of years to have a bunch of these ideas come into fruition and continue to build on them and just continue to reach more and more students here at UNC Chapel Hill.
3: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Laura, for taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoy hearing Laura's perspective on how Edible Campus could plug into the efforts of countless other UNC food organizations and use resources effectively to create sustainability. This next interview with the manager of a sustainably run community garden that provides its produce to UNC's low-wage employees will explore how university food organizations can address food access issues as well.
2: Uh, my name is Claire Lorch, and I'm the garden manager education coordinator for the Carolina Campus Community Garden. I'm responsible for (laughs) everything that happens at the garden, basically. But So I have to do the planning for what we're going to be planting. So thinking about just the general overall maintenance of the garden. Also manage the volunteers. We have three workdays a week. So plan out the workdays and then come up with how I'm going to use whatever number of volunteers that turn up, and I never quite know. Planning out how I'm going to, when and how I'm going to distribute the food to the housekeepers. All the food that we raise goes to the housekeepers, so planning those distributions. Responsible for funding, making sure we have enough money so that most of my salary is covered, but everything else, like I have a part time garden assistant, and everything else has to be fundraised. So, but you know, and I guess overall, I, I added a new goal for next year, and that's community engagement, because I think. That's so much a part of what we do, and so important to, to our success.
3: Mm-hmm. When did the garden get started, and how did you get involved? And how did what did it look like, and how far has it come?
2: The idea for the garden emerged back in two thousand and nine, and I just happened to be at the table when it did, and we were talking about. It was a group of administrators, mostly. We were talking about the impact that the Great Recession was having on UNC employees at that time. Somebody at the table, Alice Ammerman, said, Why don't we start a community garden? And at the time, I was working at the Carolina Center for Public Service, and um, the director of that program was also there at the table, and she mentioned that the university had recently purchased this piece of land in front of the Carolina Center for Public Service. She saw my enthusiasm at the idea of starting a garden. and So she gave me permission It's part of my job to try to organize it. That's kind of how it got started. And then it wasn't hard to find other people who were equally enthusiastic, who wanted to get on board. And, and yeah, 2010, we had our first, in March 20th. First day of spring, we had our first work day. And we've been going ever since. And so we started as 8,000 square feet. We're now 14,000 square feet. We're, we are on temporary space, but as far as I know, the university doesn't have any plans to um, ask us to move at this point in time. Hopefully they won't anytime soon. Mm-hmm.
3: And can you paint a picture for me now of what the garden looks like 10
2: years later? Aside from the weeds that I'm envisioning right now, you know, we've got 43 beds. We have a solar-powered greenhouse out there have a beautiful cedar tool shed. We now have a lemon compost bin, so we started with three you know, we have four accessible beds so that people um, with mobility issues can still garden with us. We've got fruit trees, we've got grapevines, we've got shiitake mushroom logs. There's a lot going on, so we've, we've come a long way.
3: Mm-hmm. And can you tell me more about sustainability practices that you just do on the farm as a, okay. as a unit?
2: Okay, well, again, we've got, so in terms of water neutrality, we have a drip irrigation system. So we can really water most of the garden in two nights. Oh, we do it overnight to minimize evaporation, and then with the turn of a switch, we can water half the garden. Um, We plant intensively, and we also plant, and this has been really um, a wonderful partnership with the Botanical Garden, a lot of native plants. So that's about it for water neutrality. Um, When it comes to zero waste to landfills, Composting, we take that very seriously at the garden. So we have, again, I think I told you, we started off with three bins and did it casually, and we are now with 11 bins. We have three, during the academic year, we have three compost co managers. So these are students who do nothing else when they come to the garden generally except work in the compost. And they really take it seriously, and we have an Excel sheet so they record which bin got turned, which bin got added to, and you know which bin we're letting rest. We also have a bin outside so that anyone in the community can come and contribute compost to us twenty four seven. And inevitably, whenever I'm out there, and which is lately every single day, somebody comes by and brings their compost, and I always yell from the other side of the garden, "Thank you!" And they are always as appreciative, if not more, because they want some place to bring their food waste, and they know they're contributing to the garden's success. So that's worked out really well for us. We use um, we grow a lot of things vertically, and so we use bamboo, which right now we're harvesting from Carolina North. To keep weeds off the pathway, we put down cardboard which we get out of bins behind restaurants and wood chips that we uh, we have a tree trimmer friend who comes and delivers wood chips to us when we need them. It's good for him, he doesn't have to take them to the landfill. And, and you know, anytime we're creating a new structure, we always try to use wood scraps when we can. Greenhouse gas neutrality. Um, as I mentioned, we have a greenhouse. it's it's completely solar powered. We don't have an electricity on um, property, and so that's been a fantastic addition to our garden so we can grow all of our well most of our own seedlings. Um, and by providing the fresh produce to the gardens recipients, the housekeepers, they don't have to go and buy them from the grocery store, which may or not be locally sourced. So that's another plus. And then because we're located so close to the to the campus, most of our volunteers either walk, or take the bus, or bike. Very few people that have to drive. And other sustainable practices, we plant to attract beneficial insects. I think I said that. Right now we have two beehives. We've had up to four, but they um, help us pollinate our crops. You know we practice crop rotation, cover crops. We don't use any synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. And whenever possible, we try not to use any pesticides. So we either catch cabbage moths with butterfly nets or we do whatever we can to minimize the impact because even organic pesticides impact the good stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you
3: stay sustainable and both in the sense of being green and green sustainable, but also like making sure that you have enough money and have enough enough hands to do what you want the next year.
2: You know, in terms of the people piece, we have we really have a core group of people who have some of them have been with us from day one, that first day. So these are community people. Um, some of them are retired, and then there's staff people. That has helped. So we have a core of people that continue to come year after year and know what to do and so I can put them in leadership positions and they can then share it with the, the next crew that comes on. So that's helpful. And it's surprising enough we have students even when they graduate, if they stay in the area, a lot of them still come back and volunteer with us when they can. So that has helped. And plus, you know, great partners has really been helpful. The Employee Forum has been with us from the beginning. They contribute funding to us. They it was, it used to be $1,000 a year, it just went up to $2,500. They sit on our advisory committee, and they're just totally behind us. And Alice Ammerman, who came up with the idea, she and the Center for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention, another partner and the Botanical Garden, are all sort of, they've been with us from day one. And so, you know, I feel like I can go to them when I have issues, and um, they're they're very helpful in terms of just Brainstorming ideas. You know, funding is always a struggle. You know, we've gotten grants from Stroud Roses, which is a local foundation that funds all kinds of cool things in the community, but they're really interested in beautifying the community and food access. So we're a really good match. And we've gotten quite a few grants from them, and they've been a great source of support for us. And, you know, we also write letters, appeal letters. We've been lucky, you know, we've had somebody who has contributed over the years and has made a really significant contributions. so just trying to keep up those relationships and not take anything for granted. You know, we also maintain records so that we can say when well, we're writing grants right now, I think we've um, given away 21 tons of food, things like that, that can impress people, that these people are serious, they have a history, um, they know what they're doing, it's worth investing in them. mm mm-hmm.
3: UNC has all these sort of different parts of its sustainable food systems. What role does the garden play in sustainable food systems at
2: UNC? You know, we see ourselves as addressing the food access issue for staff, particularly low-income staff. You know, when we first started the garden, we decided that the impetus was that people were struggling to feed their families during the Great Recession. So that's, um, and we decided early on that we would garden all the beds communally and, the, and we identified the housekeepers, partly they're one of the largest units on campus and certainly with some of the lowest paid workers, plus the status. and at the time politically things were not good. They got a lot of negative publicity for things that were going on in the administration with the housekeepers and everything else. so it seemed like this would be a win-win. And so that's how that was decided. And there are about 400 housekeepers, you know and most of them work second and third shift when I first started I think it was 40 percent were refugees from Burma and now it's like 70 percent you know f- refugees from Burma African- American some Latino some white so it's a it's a real mix you know they tell us that it just helps them you know in terms of saving money but it, it's also I think it's more than that as I think one of the zone managers, one of the supervisors said it, the garden makes the housekeepers feel like the university cares about them as people and not just housekeepers. It's symbolic of, yeah, we recognize that you probably don't earn enough money to be able to buy this fresh local produce, so we're going to provide it for you, and we're also going to give you work time to come and get it. So it's done during their work time. So we you know, we distribute it at 6 a.m. The third shift seven thirty a.m. for first shift and five p.m. for second shift. And we also do cooking demonstrations too. So that's another thing in terms of introducing new foods to some folks or introducing new ways of cooking foods. And we also raise plants and we give plants out to housekeepers. And we just recently had a housekeeper they sent me. Um, <laughs> they sent me photographs of their tomato plants because they were so proud of them. And so, again, I think that I guess, also contributes to sustainable practices if they're growing their own. You know, at one point we were even looking at expanding to meet the needs of the staff at the dining hall that are not UNC employees and do not get the same benefits that UNC does. They get benefits, but their salaries are significantly lower, and. Um, Decided that we didn't have the capacity to do that because that could mean another four hundred people or something. And what are you
3: hoping will be the the next steps for the garden and your one to five year plan? And
2: just doing whatever we're doing better, adapting to to this climate change thing. Which you know, I feel like I'm going to have to do things differently next summer. You know, we just won't be able to grow the things that we want to grow because it's just too hot. Or well, we have to create you know, get shade cloth or high tunnels or do something different because this this isn't working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to throw a a new wrench into things. (laughs) This is the first year that it's really felt like a huge impact for us. Even though it's been creeping along, this year is really hard. You know, I feel like my job at the work days is keep people from passing
3: out. Make sure people are hydrating. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And why is it important to, like, have... This garden that's filling this need and playing this role in UNC's sustainable food systems and feeding all the people who work there, and not just study there.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's important because certainly it sends a message to the employees, but it it's also an, an you know incredible learning opportunity, I think, and a service opportunity for staff, students, faculty, community members. It's really important as um, you know an outdoor classroom or an educational opportunity. It meets a lot of needs, I think, and, um, you know, I think it's an important statement for this university to say, yeah, we, you know, committed this piece of land because we think it's important not only to feed our low-wage workers, but for students and staff and faculty to have this opportunity to learn and to, to do all the things that you might not be able to do otherwise if you didn't have it right there.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Claire. It was great to talk with you today. While my interviews with Laura and Claire focused on the impacts that small gardens can make in a big university, I wanted to go to the sustainability efforts of UNC's biggest food provider, Carolina Dining Services. This next interview will explore how a big university's purchasing power and decision making can be used for sustainable good.
0: My name is Scott Myers and I'm the Director of Auxiliary Services and one of my responsibilities is overseeing Carolina Dining Service. There are 16 different food operations on campus. The biggest facilities that we have are all-you-can-eat dining halls that serve a million and a half people a year between the two of them. At those dining halls, you have 10 different food concepts in one, and then eight in another. That's being expanded now to nine. And then we have three different food courts ranging from about half a million people served in the largest one of those down to like 250,000 a year in the smallest one.
3: Mm What do you think that the role of the dining halls is in UNC's sort of sustainable food system? Like, What power do you wield to make the food systems on campus more sustainable?
0: So I think that the two biggest areas that uh, we're impactful in is the obvious one of, um, well, we buy $10 million worth of food every year. In terms of impacting you know food purchases and that sort of thing, we, we certainly have the lion's share of that um, opportunity. And then the second thing is, is that we're serving over 4 million people a year in our different operations. It's funny that different pockets of campus kind of view sustainability differently, I think, or whether or not it's on their conscience or not. And certainly, I mean, there's 10,000-plus faculty and staff, too, so you're also trying to meet their needs as well, which could be kind of contrary to to what your overall goals are. Um, I mean, you have to balance what you're doing to make sure that you're trying to serve everybody as best as you can. But, yeah, so our facing the students with our operations and our people as well as our purchasing power gives us a unique opportunity, I think.
3: Mm -hmm. Like what are some of the most significant decisions maybe that you've made with purchasing power that you think have made a really big impact?
0: Well, in the all-you-can-eat operations, I think we've gone more towards um, a vegetable-centric type of food menuing. So Meatless Mondays, which we've branded as actually less meat instead of taking away all the meat. We just market more um, to people to be mindful of eating less meat. So less beef really is kind of one of our big observations over the years. The other thing is is I think menus over the last 10 years have gotten more, our students have become more desirable of ethnic or international type of menus. So you see more Asian menus, Latin uh, and Indian also. And a lot of those were actually more vegetable Based type of recipes, you know. So they kind of went hand in hand as well.
3: And can you talk a little bit about the Real Food Commitment, like what that is and what that looks like in the dining hall?
0: Sure. So the Real Food Commitment is actually a commitment that um, the Chancellor signed back a few years ago. It was 2016. And committing the University Food Service in its main all-you-can-eat dining halls to purchase 20% of its food purchases qualifying as real food, which um, real food is a national campaign that has a matrix that identifies how foods can qualify as real um, along four different categories. Like Local is one of the categories, fair, ecologically sound, and environmentally friendly. And so there's different criteria in each of those categories that you can, depending on how the food is produced, uh, where it comes from, who makes it, will determine whether or not it qualifies. And then part of this commitment was actually working with students as an academic uh, venture to analyze food every year with the what they call the real food calculator. And so you have a, a non-biased, I guess, best way to put it, you know, learning opportunity for students to actually look at exactly what's bought. They get invoices from the food contractor and they categorize them into a spreadsheet that is, you know, basically flushed through the national organization for verification. And then they come up with a percentage of food that qualifies in two different categories, a real food A and a real food B. Real Food A being the more desirable and Real Food B still qualifying but allowing some room for improvement in terms of how it qualifies.
3: And what are UNC's most recent Real Food numbers?
0: The commitment was that we would reach 20 percent of our purchases by 2020 qualifying under, at that time it was version 1.1 of the um, Real Food calculator. The year that we signed it, uh, the chancellor signed the agreement, we exceeded 20 percent. And we've exceeded it every year on version 1.1 since then. This fall, fall of 2018, which was analyzed this spring, for version 1.1 they actually exceeded 25 percent of the purchases. But the updated version of the real food matrix is now on version 2.1. And under 2.1, the criteria gets more stringent. And they exceeded 18% on that version.
3: Are you trying to like still get to 20% on version 2.1?
0: So we kind of look at it at, in terms of priorities. Our first priority being to exceed what we committed to, which was the 1.1 version. So we're looking to do that, but we're also tracking what 2.1 version is so that we can try and improve that as well.
3: Yeah. What are the challenges of making the real food decisions and making sure that you meet commitments while also satisfying the needs of the students?
0: The biggest challenge with the the actual commitment or the calculator itself is making sure that the criteria is correct and that students are actually analyzing it correctly. One of our challenges, again, has been the change in the versions of what the, the uh, Real Food National puts out. Their latest versions, the biggest roadblock, I think, is a criteria that requires um, vendors of uh, fresh produce to be $5 million or less. And those people in the food service industry know that that's an incredibly low volume of business. And quite frankly, we don't, really see how that actually applies to being able to improve our real food numbers. So there's a point of contention there that, um, that we would like to get clarified. Nevertheless, that's kind of how they're, they're looking at it now. And Obviously the goal being to increase support of small farming. We just don't have the science behind why th- that number, and is that the appropriate number, and that sort of thing. So that's something that's pretty much under discussion now. Then, you know, in terms of the service points, one is basically communicating to, um, to students what is real food and what isn't. I'm not sure if real food has a branding identity that big with the, your normal student. So what you're trying to do is kind of send the message that what we're trying to do is more local, more fair, more organic, those type of things, and then serving menus that are conducive to that, and then trying to get, you know, food into menus so that you can consistently know that, that that product is actually local or whatever it is. And so what we've tended to trend to over the years is say, okay, well, let's just put more money into hamburgers so all of our hamburgers are local. But we've kind of moved around some depending on feedback and criteria we get from the students that are doing the, the research for that. Um, because. There's been producers that we have basically qualified some years, and then later said, "No, these guys aren't are cutting it now." And it may be because that their their um, qualifications change, or it may be because well, we're interpreting the data differently, and so dealing with those kind of changes, you know, is something that's an ongoing process, I guess.
3: Right. Yeah. One thing I wanted to follow up on, and you talked about some of the challenges with real food, and that's a big part of sustainability. But are there any other main challenges with just making sustainability decisions in general?
0: The industry is still evolving, I think, um, because the model is actually built off of um, you know bid manufacturers producing lots of food at the cheapest cost they can. Over the years, that they've had to evolve, and I see that continuing to evolve. And then I see more people kind of getting into producing and manufacturing. So there's more opportunities to do different things. And even though our um, our focus right now is really to try and balance with affordability, so I think we, we'd be taxed to uh, to try and spend more money on um, sustainable food. I expect that more producers and better technology and better systems can help make more food available at a better price. There's an operation we're looking at for this fall called Your Local Greens that is um, done hydroponically out of, gets over by, uh, by Greensboro. And they have a huge factory where, where they're actually producing a good bit of um, hydroponic produce. And um, it's difficult for us to find single vendors that can produce anywhere near enough produce for us to purchase, so it's a innovation for them to be able to have such a large operation that can meet a good bit of our needs.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting.
0: Yeah.
3: One of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about was what is your relationship to the other food organizations and groups on campus that are smaller, but also doing work too, with food accessibility and with education?
0: First of all, the remnants of the Food for All theme committee we try and stay in contact with and um, and participate. We still have regular meetings to where we can share ideas and events and things like that to where we all can synergize, where there's overlap in our opportunities. And we've always worked with our campus partners, um, departments like housing and student unions and and trying to... Um, utilize each other's programs and strengths to be able to bring better services to the students. So so we'll go out to residence halls and, and things with our chefs and do cooking demonstrations and, and dietary type of uh, consultations. Then there's a there's a number of student groups on campus that usually we're, we're either engaging with them on just information and, and things that we can help out with uh, in terms of, well, this is how it works sort of thing. And then there's um, the campus garden and the um, edible campus that have been partners of ours um, and we've communicated with on, on our program so that um, we could both try and uh, take advantage of the opportunities that we have. Mainly the edible campus, which maintains a garden in our bed out front of uh, our main facility on campus, Lenore. It's probably the most visible spot because the pit um, which Lenore is located in is the highest traffic area on campus and so everybody got to, has to walk past that garden and they label it and maintain it and um, and it looks really tremendous and students actually get to uh, see you know food growing there although we don't use any of the stuff that grows there in the dining halls the it's still an opportunity for for students to see what real food looks like quite honestly a number of students come into college and don't even know what a pepper may look like, or a, um, or a tomato, or a squash. And so it's kind of neat to be able to see that. And then you know, they have a big garden right behind the library on campus that is a tremendous garden. It's the best I've seen on a college campus. It's not an agricultural campus. It's very informative to students to see how to actually grow what you're eating. And so part of our partnerships with them is actually, um, we support them with some funding and they support us with some visibility. And we try to work on things like messaging and discussions as to food insecurity and how they could actually um, get information from Edible Campus as to what kind of things they can get at grocery stores and how to prepare things and, um, and actually glean some of the uh, the harvest, I guess, to take back to residence halls to use. And so we, we continue to work with them. We're actually looking at an initiative. We're bringing in some equipment into the new renovated Chase Hall this year. And we're talking to Edible Campus about setting up some kind of oversight of growing um, some microgreens and, um, and some other vegetables inside the dining hall with this specialized equipment. So I'm looking forward to see how that works out.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll have to come back and visit and check it out. And eat some. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's the best part. (laughs) And I'm curious what you think are the important elements of a sustainable food system and how UNC is doing on having all of those elements and where there's still room for growth.
0: I think defining what is sustainable is probably the the key thing. And that was one thing that Real Food actually helped out with was here is a ready-made matrix that gives you the framework to, you know, how you could define what would be sustainable. Do they need improvements? My thoughts are yes, but um, I haven't seen anybody else come up with something yet that's like that. If you compare it to the ACHE surveys, which are self-reporting, and there's no mechanism other than tying it back to real food to gauge things by, you know, the real food calculator is actually a much more usable tool. Uh, with that said, I think it's starting to get a little bit broader in scope, and I think there's gonna be a difficulty in actually getting people involved in that if it gets too much broader and tries to tackle too many things. I think part of the its success has been to be able to focus in on, on specific food purchases and the actual components or qualities, as opposed to um, to some of the more social aspects of, of businesses and, um, one of the things we're working on this year, students, faculty, and staff, is actually trying to get more of a dialogue to get a seat at that table to help define where, you know, where are the parameters for the real food calculator and matrix. And also just, I mean, honestly, to consider are we evolving past that into something where we need to define something that's, that's customized to the University of North Carolina and meets the needs of, of the population here. And to give you a good example, so, you know, should we look at supporting North Carolina business more than just, you know, some other tool in terms of what's local or, or not? Do we really want to exclude businesses that are more than $5 million in the annual volume, sales volume, those sorts of things?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we've covered a lot of topics, real food, to sustainability in general, to relationships, to sustainable food systems, but have I not asked about something that you think is important?
0: I think we have pretty much covered the, um, the highlights of how work, sustainability works on food service on campus.
3: Great. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking You're the time right. to chat with me. That's it for this episode on sustainable food systems at UNC Chapel Hill. Thank you to Dave Carlsgott and Sarah Barr for their assistance in editing this podcast. And thank you to my three interviewees for their time and insights. To learn more about today's episode or any of our shows, you can visit our website at campusenergypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at Energy Podcast, or find us on LinkedIn by searching for the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes or sending a link to a friend. As always,
2: thank you for listening.